and welcome to the latest episode of the Getting Close with me, Mike Marback Podcast. Before we get into it, I'd like to say that this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Uh, Audible.com for all your audiobook needs. If you listen to my other podcasts, then you hear me talk about Audible quite a bit. The other podcast being the Stark Raven Mad Game of Thrones podcast. Uh, and that is because a couple of us uh, have listened to the Game of Thrones books on Audible. Uh, and it, i got to tell you, I don't know that I'm going to pick up another book again. Uh, well, I'm sure at some point I'll physically pick up another book. But it's so much easier to just listen to it. Uh, because I... I'm running around, I'm doing different things, I'm doing shows, I'm working, I'm on a train, I'm on a bus, um, and it's very tough to, for me to make time to just sit and read. But I got through those first two books, uh, the first two Game of Thrones books, in a matter of like eight days, I, I guess it would have been, uh, because I could listen the whole time while I was at work, or while I was on the bus, or the L, or wherever, or walking to and fro uh, different places. Uh, it was just so much easier to get through those books, and, uh, I'm currently going through, uh, an, a book that I started that I wasn't able to finish physically, uh, Confederacy of Dunces, a uh, real fun book. Um, so those are just three of the over 100,000 audiobooks that you can choose from. Uh, if you go to audibletrial.com slash podcast. If you do that, we get a we. I get the podcast gets the podcast we get um, a little bit of cash. If you don't like it, you can always cancel it. But it's a pretty great service, and uh, you should keep it. And if you do, you get a free audiobook download every single month and thirty percent off of any audiobooks that you want to buy in addition to that. So it's a pretty great deal. Check it out. This podcast is a pretty special one for me because it's with one of my improv mentors, Mr. Mark Sutton. Uh, he's a big-time Chicago improviser, uh, but he's pretty world-known. Uh, he travels around quite a bit doing different festivals, particularly with Basprov, uh, his duo with uh, Joe Bill. Uh, the last time they were in Philly was 2007. They did their show. Uh, and it's... Uh, it's great, and he is fantastic. He's probably one of the biggest influences, uh, especially as far as teaching improv goes, that I've had. Yeah, this is a class in itself. If you were in his workshops, you'll definitely appreciate this. And if you were not in his workshops, you'll listen to this and wish that you had been. Uh, and definitely you'll want to get in there uh, the next time he's out, which hopefully will not be another five years. Uh, I mean, you're going to hear us talk about the origins of The Annoyance, how he got into comedy, uh, and then it's just a lot of general improv talk uh, from the perspective of a performer uh, and an instructor. And it's uh, just what he likes about improv. And it's uh, it's pretty pretty great because he said a lot of stuff that I've said in classes over the years, uh, and I didn't realize. I mean, I knew that... I was heavily influenced by the guy, uh, but in hearing him say so many things, there were so many things that I've already said that I didn't attribute back to him. Uh, but yeah, ladies and gentlemen, listen as I get close with Mark 
Sutton. Uh, yeah, welcome to the Getting Close with Mike Marbeck podcast. I am Mike Marbeck, and I am joined with uh, joined by, as English tells us to say it, uh, Mark Sutton. Hello, Mark. Hey, how are you? How are you? I'm I'm good. Uh, this isn't your first time in Philly, right? It's the it's actually the third time, but the second time for improv. Right, yeah. You were here 2007-ish with yeah. Joe Bill, uh, which is Bassprov. Yeah, and yeah. And you did Bassprov at the Shubin. Yep, and then I did, uh, back in 2000, I was shooting an independent film, and we shot for a couple days in in Philly during the uh during the Republican National Convention. Nice. Yeah. What was the what was the the indie? It never saw the light of day, uh-huh. but it was um it was a comedy called Penniless, One Man's Crusade, and it was about this guy who was basically an attention seeker, but he duped a young filmmaker into making a documentary about him mm. because he had a campaign to eliminate the penny from the uh, monetary system. That's a Something that people really want to happen. Yeah. Not in you know overall, but there are people that they really want it gone. Yeah, but this guy had no idea what he was talking about. So <laughs> we we came here and we filmed outside the U.S. Mint, and we filmed at Ben Franklin's grave. Okay. And we filmed over in that Constitutional Hall area where yeah. I almost got arrested because uh, I was playing this character and somebody thought I was causing a disturbance and everybody was on heightened alert <laughs> because of the conventions. There were cops everywhere mm-hmm. and uh, and the director of the film had to explain to basically a SWAT team uh, why we were acting like we were. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, it was pretty I, funny. Yeah. I remember you just reminded me of something happened in one of our classes at the Annoyance where you had auditioned, I think it was for Witless Protection Oh, yeah. Uh, do you remember what you said the director had said to you and what you said back? <clears throat> oh, man. It was something about... Oh, I, yes. It, we were. They called Joe and I in together because we were supposed to be these like country fishing guys, kind of like the guys in Bassbroth. And we did the audition, and then the guy's like, you, you can make the guy dumber. And I looked at him and said, I don't think I can. <laughs> I don't think I can make him any dumber. So you didn't get that part? No, okay. I did not. All right. Uh, good. Sorry, we couldn't give you a win yesterday. Uh, you know, it was a good game from a baseball perspective. From a good one game. very specific aspect of the baseball <laughs> perspective of pitching, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into some of the, mm-hmm. some of the questions. Um, what was your family like growing up that... Made you want to get into this? Um, you know, I, I think it was... Um, I don't know if they were directly related, but all of my siblings are way older than me. Mm-hmm. So I have uh, four brothers and a sister. They're all at least ten years older than I am. So I was a mistake baby. <laughs> so by the time I got into kind of those formative years where you start having your own opinions about stuff, mm-hmm. you know, in 13 or 14 or whatever... Um, <clears throat> even though I came from a big family, I was basically an only child. Because everybody, all my siblings had grown up and gotten married or moved out of the house or whatever. So I was kind of just me and my parents, and my parents were older. So I spent a lot of time, a lot of downtime at home by myself. Um, and even younger, like when my parents would go out, I would be babysat by one of my older siblings, right? And their wife or whatever. So I spent a lot of Saturday nights watching MASH and the Bob Newhart Show and Carol Burnett. And that started 
kind of informing what I thought was funny. Maybe at an age where normally I wouldn't have been exposed to that if I hadn't been to their house. Um, And then around the time of Saturday Night Live and things like that, I was kind of on my own. So um, that would be my, I'm going to go in my room and watch Saturday Night Live on my little 14-inch black and white television, you know. So it kind of came out of that. Um, But I was always that person that would, um, you know, pretend to sing songs at the radio and, Mm -hmm. you know, that stuff. But never really felt like that was what I wanted to do until I got to college. Yeah. You didn't didn't do anything in uh, elementary school or high school? I did, like, the senior class play. Okay. And, you know, skits at the pep rally and that kind of stuff. And I was always kind of that guy that would... I wasn't very big in high school, mm-hmm. and uh, so I had to use my sense of humor to balance that out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but n- never saw it as a as a path. Right. At that point. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned SNL. What were some of your uh, growing up? Some of your more favorite SNL sketches. My well, my favorite, my two favorite people on SNL in the early years were Aykroyd. I felt like Aykroyd was m- more like me. He kind of had that that mindset that I had as far as what I thought was funny. You know how, like, when you watch a show like that, most of the, most of the things that you laugh at the hardest tend to have somebody in them mm-hmm. consistently. Yeah, sure. And it was his stuff that I laughed at more than anything. Um, I couldn't... I loved John Belushi, but I couldn't relate to Belushi because right. he was just so out there. Uh, and then I also loved Jane Curtin just because I had, like, a crush on Jane <laughs> Curtin. Yeah. So, um, it, it was those two. But, uh, like... I still remember things like, you know, the Bassomatic 76 and all those yeah. fake yeah. commercials and and um speaking of the the uh the Pepperelli sketches a friend of mine and I did uh you know the two wild and crazy guys at mm-hmm. one of our one of our high school Pepperellis cuz I loved those characters and and I always loved Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. Um that was a that was a big one from back then. So they recently brought those characters back on SNL. Yeah, it was kind of sad. They've gotten bigger. Yeah, especially Aykroyd. (laughs) (laughs) But his hair is even darker now than it was before. Even more sad. Uh, What's the... Doesn't he have like a vodka or something that he pushes? In real life? Yeah. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's like in an alien head or something. Like a crystal skull. Because he did run uh, host like this alien... Show. I uh-huh. don't remember that. I can't remember what it was called. Sci Factor or, or uh, oh like right, that. right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You said you liked Ackward back then. You could see something in him. What was mm-hmm. it that you saw in him that reminded him, reminded you of yourself? Well, I think I think I was attracted to kind of that that everyman quality with something a little off. Mm-hmm. And I've always been kind of gravitated toward characters like that. I've, I've never been like a huge. Um, Charactery type performer, right. but I like playing somebody who appears on the surface to be normal. But as the scene goes on, you mm-hmm. find out that there's something a little bit kind of strange about him. Yeah, and and I think that he was really good at doing that. There's just a little bit of, I don't know if it's creepiness or what, but yeah. I kind of like that. Just something a little more. Okay, you said you got more into following this as a, as a path a little bit in mm-hmm. college. Where yeah. did you go to college? Indiana University. Right. So I went to IU. Um, my major was broadcast journalism. 
So my <clears throat> my intention going to going to college was I'm gonna I'm gonna study journalism and broadcasting, and when I get out, I'm either gonna be a sportscaster, which is what I really wanted to do, yeah. uh, or a political reporter, which also held interest to me. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm, I I have two degrees. My bachelor's is in uh, broadcast journalism, and I have like a an associate's degree in public and environmental affairs. Okay. Both rich, <laughs> rich comedy material. Um, and then my sophomore year of college, Mick Napier lived on my dorm floor. So that's how we met. We, okay. He moved into the dorm. He was a freshman. And we became friends, and there was like a circle of us that were kind of buddies. And, and he was in theater, and he started doing plays, so we would go see his plays. And, and then you started meeting other people, other theater people, and uh, going to theater parties, which were way more interesting than... You know, yeah. dorm floor parties. Sure. Um, and then after about three years of knowing Mick, him and another guy, uh, Dave McNerland, decided they wanted to start their own sketch comedy group. So they had auditions, and that's where uh, Joe Bill came into the picture, and Faith Soloway, and people like that. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't in the group then. I, they performed around campus for a year at IU in different bars and venues. And I would go see him and we'd hang out, but I wasn't in the group. And then toward the end of that first year, they had a they had a running gig at this place called the Rathskeller. And it was right off campus. And um, they had a show coming up that they had to do. I mean, it was, a, it was like a, you know, a set night of shows. Mm-hmm. But a bunch of them were doing a benefit for something else. So they only had a cast of three, and they felt like they needed one more. So they talked me into doing it as a fill-in. And I did it, we had fun, it did well, never thought anything about it. But then in that summer between that school year and the next school year, which would have been my last year at IU, um, one of the girls and one of the guys in the group left. So they needed to replace them. Mm-hmm. And I replaced the guy. So that's how it happened. Okay, so that's how the path the path got started. How do you That's how it started, yeah. How do you get from uh, you know, you, Joe Bill, uh, Mick Napier mm-hmm. in IU. First, are you originally from Indiana? Or yeah. Originally, you were originally yeah, I grew Indiana. up in a, a little town called Tipton, Okay, which is 5,000 people. It's north of Indianapolis, so okay. born and raised in Indiana. You know? All right. Uh, and you guys, at one point, did you go to Chicago with these people? Well, I got out. Of, I, I graduated. Joe graduated. Uh, a couple other people graduated that next year. And... <clears throat> and I started working in radio. I got a job at a radio station in Indiana. I was doing news mm-hmm. and uh, reporting and doing uh, getting up at, you know, what is it, 3.30 in the morning oh, to do the morning drive. So I was the morning news guy on the drive time show, you know. And I was doing that. And meanwhile, over the course of time, those guys all filtered up to Chicago. Okay. And they started taking classes at I.O. And they started doing stuff at Second City. And uh, that's when, like, Mick and Joe and Faith and those guys met Dave Rosowski and Tim Meadows. And they're like, oh, we want to start our own group, mm-hmm. uh, which at that time was called Metroform. Okay. So they decided to start their own group, and that's when I started getting phone calls of, like, come up here, yeah. just give it a shot, yeah. you know, come up and try it. So I moved up there, and... Um, is this like uh, 1987? Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. the late 80s. All right. 1987 in in the fall, I moved to Chicago, 
And they were already doing, or they just were getting ready to open their first show, which was called Splatter Theater. So it was a, a parody of slasher films. Mm. And uh, blood all over the walls, the whole deal. Uh, so that had already been cast and set by the time I got there, so I just helped out backstage and you know, rigged up the special effects and all that. And uh, it was weird because at that time we were in a space called Cross Currents, okay. which was right by the L-Tracks, the Belmont L-Tracks, and it was a big building, and downstairs was I.O. That's where they were doing shows. So when you walked in the building, huge bar on one side, and on the other side, huge performance room. So that's where Improv Olympic was. Okay. And if you went up the stairs, smaller room up the stairs with a stage, that's where Annoyance was, or Metroform at that time. So for a little bit of time, about a year, both of those entities were in the same building. How did that go over? <coughs> Uh, I think it was fine because it was, you know, two totally different things. Sure. You know, we were doing a play, they were doing the Herald. And back then, it was actually, which is why it was originally called Improv Olympic, it was a competition. You know, the audience would vote on who won that night, the whole wow. deal, you know. Okay. That's why, that's why it was called Improv Olympic. Yeah. Uh, but it was so different, you know, yeah. and, and just kind of, kind of weird to have everybody there. Yeah. And then that place went out of business. And Improv Olympic moved, and we didn't know what we were going to do. So we kind of went dormant yeah. for a few months in the summertime. And then it opened back up again as a blues club. So now there was a blues bar downstairs, and we took over the upstairs again, and we did Splatter Theater 2. And then we did Coed Prison Sluts up there. We opened it. And then that went out of business again. And we moved to what became the Annoyance Theater. Um, so the Annoyance was actually what we just called the building that we moved into. Okay. Um, and then over the course of time, it met the name Metroform, which was our company name, just kind of dropped off, and okay. we became the Annoyance Theater company. So. Okay. Um, so that's basically the the origin story. Yeah. Yeah. Of the Annoyance Theater. Uh, you moved a few times, right? Annoyance? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we were there. The, the very first show they ever did was in a place called Cabaret Metro, which is a big music club in Chicago. Okay. And that's why the, it was called Metroform. It's kind of a take on that name. But they only did one show there. And then we were at this place called Cross Currents, which was later caught in Chicago. Then we moved to a place on Broadway, which we called The Annoyance. And then from Broadway to Clark Street, over by Wrigley Field. Mm-hmm. And then um, we had this little loft space on Lincoln for a little while that was, I think, hugely illegal to even be doing shows there. Um, why why was it, would that be the case? It, it wasn't designated for performance oh, or anything. Building or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, the space that we're in now, farther up on Broadway, which has been the Annoyance's home since 90 or 2006, something like that. And yeah. now we're getting ready to move again. You mentioned a couple shows I wanted to quickly talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is wildly popular over the years, Co-Ed Prison Slut. Mm-hmm. What, what's the story with that one? Um, Both the synopsis of the of the thing and just sure. kind of how it came about. Well, Co-Ed was kind of, it was kind of born almost out of desperation. We, um, which happens sometimes artistically, right? So the, the first show was Splatter Theater, and it went pretty well. Mm. It was fairly well received. It was, a, you know, it was a very... Uh, you know, had a, a nice niche. It, we did it around Halloween time. Yeah. 
uh, slasher film, the whole thing. It was kind of unique. And that's the... Even back then, did they paint the whole area white? Yep, the whole stage is painted white by the time she's over. Strawberry, quick, or whatever they... Uh, Hershey syrup and red food coloring. Okay. To this day, have trouble smelling Hershey syrup. Um, So we did that, and then the next year, we kind of got convinced by some friends to make it even bigger, right? So invested more money, more money in advertising, more money in this. Well, we ended up losing a bunch of money on it. So much that it was like, wow, I don't know if we can continue. Yeah. We were so much in debt. And a lot of people left. They didn't want to deal with the struggle, right? Yeah. So there were about nine of us left. And we got together and it's like, okay, we're going to do one more show. That's kind of make or break for this theater company. We'll see what happens. And um, we went in the room one night and Mick's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a musical and it's going to be dirty, and it's going to, at some point, feature a man in a dress fighting a clown. (laughs) I don't know why or how. That's all we knew. And we started improvising, and we started that, you know, what is the annoyance process, where you start, you just churn out characters and characters and characters, and then you weed the characters down into relationships, and, and all of a sudden you got some scenes and then you figure mm-hmm. out how that becomes a show and, yeah. and that's that's how co-ed happened okay and the original the original agreement of the nine people in the room with co-ed was we're going to run the show for six weeks and it ran for 11 years oh jeez yeah like how consistent through that 11 years was it like a monthly weekly it was it started out three days a week Thursday, Friday, Saturday um, and it it was like that for the first it opened in April, so from April till about September, I think, it was three nights a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Wow. And then uh, the place we were doing it in, that Cotton Chicago place, closed down, and we didn't have a space for a couple months, so we didn't do it at all. Mm-hmm. And then when we reopened in the new space, we brought it back, and it was just Friday, Saturday. Okay. <clears throat> so the whole rest of the time, is it's two days a week, Friday and Saturday nights. Yeah. Wow. Was that a show that just really helped this? It was make or break, so it definitely made mm-hmm. the the theater. Is that yeah. is that what you know? The you guys kind of just credit as allowing you to do everything else since. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that co-ed for all those years was the consistent. This show was going to draw, and make money, yeah. and that that will allow us to do the other stuff that we want to do. The other things, right? Yeah. So. And we, uh, granted, we had other shows that were huge for short periods of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Brady Bunch, gigantic hit, yeah. brought in a lot of money, a lot of exposure to the theater, all that stuff, for about a year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Judy Bloom show, same thing. Big hit, brought in a ton of money for a short period of time. But co-ed was that baseline, you know, we know pretty much every week for 11 years, that we're going to sell at least 100 or 150 tickets to co-ed every night. Mm-hmm. So that helped us, along with the class money. So yeah. that was kind of the the base. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to jump back a little bit to, you, you mentioned it a little bit, the process, the mm-hmm. annoyance process for creating a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys have created a lot of shows <laughs> over the years. Has that basically been the process the entire, like for each time, or does that depend on the director? Yeah, it, there's variations of it. 
mm-hmm. depending on the director. Like um, with with Coed, it was very very free form. We had those couple basic ideas, and we just started improvising. So in the annoyance process, more often than not, the director also acts as the head writer. Mm-hmm. So everybody is in effect writing their own part as we go along, and. We improvise, and you improvise with different people, and you do that for a while, just a pure, pure, a pure space of creation. Let's do two weeks of just improvising, right? And then the director makes notes on all that, and then he'll come back and say, oh, remember that character you did with this scene? Remember that scene, that character that was, you know, blah, blah, blah? I want you to do that character again. Only do it with this guy, with this character, and see how these two characters interact. And then you'll play with that character, or maybe a couple, for another week or so, and try to explore that character a little deeper. And then you hone down to that one character that you... That's going to be your character for the show. Okay. And then out of that, you start building the relationships and the story out of that. That's how it happens in, like, I guess it's purest form. There's other variations where... For instance, like with Manson the Musical, we did a musical comedy about the Manson murders. Uh, With that one, uh, Tom Booker, the director, had done a lot of research on the Manson family and on the trial, and he basically came in with the timeline of kind of how he wanted the show to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Almost like a beat sheet, but it was a very loose beat sheet. It's like, this is how I see the show going beginning to end, now we're going to improvise within that framework. So it was a little more structured in that way. So it's 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 different variants, but it the the pure annoyance process is all based in discovering through improvisation what the show's going to be. Okay. Yeah. Uh, at what point, because the other thing the annoyance does is with these shows, there's a lot of musicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not all musicals, but there's definitely a, a lot, lot of them. It's kind of how we made our mark, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> during that process, at what point does music get introduced? It depends on the process. Sometimes it's early on. Uh, almost always the musical director will be there from the beginning, just okay. watching and getting ins- inspirations and ideas. And then there might be, like I've been in processes where it's like, okay, now for the next two weeks, we're just going to work on songs, mm-hmm. right? So we kind of have a structure. Usually it's once you have a structure for the story, then you look at it and go, okay, where do the songs come in? Okay. Right, and you start have to, having to think a little more uh, in a linear fashion and a musical comedy fashion of like, okay, here's a scene where this is kind of happening, feels like a song should go here. What's that song going to be? Then you start improvising it. Um, <clears throat> or a lot of times the, you know, sometimes you'll just start doing musical improv in the rehearsal to see what comes. Sometimes you'll sit down and try to fudge through a writing process real quick and then mm-hmm. try it and refine it. Um, the classic story um, in Annoyance history is the the song, the Dame song, as we call it, in Coed Prison Sluts, was improvised in a rehearsal by Ellen Stone King and Faith Soloway, who wrote the music. They improvised that song in a rehearsal into a tape recorder, and it never changed. Never changed a word, never changed a note of that song, from the time they improvised it the very first time till the time they did it in the show. Mm. But that's the only one that that, that ever happened. <laughs> sure, <Yeah. laughs> okay. but sometimes it happens. <clears throat> uh, I had a I had a night I had a one night stand in one of your shows, uh, "Marry Me, You Idiot." 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Which was uh, real fun. Uh, was that the process you just described? Is that pretty much how, how you did that one, too? Yeah, yeah, pretty close. Okay. Uh, in, in that one, we rehearsed a little bit prior to the musical director coming in. Mm. And then uh, Lisa McQueen, who did the music for that, just w- watched it and then got got song ideas and we worked them from there, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, jumping back to some of the class stuff, uh, at what point does Annoyance start offering classes to the Chicago improv community and kind of what makes them, mm-hmm. what makes uh, you guys think that you've got something different to offer? That started right around 1990? Was it 90? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, what happened was that it was after we had moved into the space on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So now we had our own space. And that space was fairly large. It had the main theater part of it, which was about 125 seats. And then it had a um, it had a basement. So when you walked in, you walked into what was the lobby, and then there was a staircase. One one went up and one went down. And the up went into the into the theater space, and the down went into this basement, which is where the washrooms were and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was also a big room down there that we sometimes did shows in, did like smaller kind of studio-type shows every once in a while, but we also used it occasionally for class. Okay. So we could have two classes going on at once. Sure. And, um, and Mick had been teaching at Second City, and we needed money. Sure. You know, like the impetus of so much, we needed money. Because uh, we had our own space now, and the big challenge of getting the space was, we need to program this. Yeah. Because when we first moved into it, we only had one show, we had co-ed. I was like, holy crap, now we have to pay, you know, we have to pay rent on this building. We need more shows. Was this your your own space seven days a week? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we took over the building. And uh, so it's like, okay, we have a fairly substantial lease payment. Yeah. And we need programming to pay. And so we we concocted three or four more new shows, and that was going okay. But then it was like, Mick was teaching at Second City, and he thought... Well, I'm teaching at Second City, and I kind of have a little bit of a basis as a teacher now. He'd been doing it for a few years. Mm-hmm. Why don't I just make this money for annoyance yeah. instead of Second City? So he decided to do his own classes, and we first started, we had three levels. So level one was Jimmy Crane. He started out with Jimmy. The Improv Nerd Podcast. Yeah, yeah. He started with Jimmy, and then you went to a guy named Scott Robinson, okay. who taught level two. And he had taught a little bit at I.O. <clears throat> and then and then Mick, and that was it. So we started slowly building a little bit of a class thing. And it wasn't big, but for us, it was really helpful. You yeah, know? sure. And then Jimmy left, and I took over the level one class. And then Scott left, and Joe Bill took over the level two class. And then for a couple years, it was still just three levels. It was me, Joe, and Mick. And then we started to expand past that, and now it's it's pretty substantial now. Yeah, so. absolutely. Uh, for me right now, there's one little missing link uh, between teaching the improv classes and where the theater was. Because uh, I remember you saying that one reason that it was okay to be in the same space as I.O. Uh, was that you guys were kind of doing plays. Mm-hmm. It was two completely different things. Yeah. At what point, the point, uh, what point does improv uh, come, <clears throat> excuse me, come to be part of just like just improv, uh, straight up improv as a show, start to be at annoyance. Yeah, 
that was after we had moved into that space of our own. Okay. So, um, and it was a little bit born out of that idea that now we're teaching improv, we should probably do an improv. <laughs> okay. Show. So right. the, the classes were before. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the first, the first, well, actually, the the, I think it was this the first one. One of the first improv shows was that was called Pup Tent Theater. Pup. Pup Tent. Pup Tent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we had done actually when we were in the space with, uh, we were in the space with IO. We did a thing called, uh, oh man, Weaselicious. I think it was the original Weaselicious, where it was some students of Mix from Second City who did a show. Okay. And then when we got into the space on Broadway, uh, Mick had a class, and they wanted to stick around and keep performing. And so uh, they concocted this show called Pup Tent Theater, which was uh, just a total gimmick. <laughs> they would all come out of a pup tent at the beginning of the show, <laughs> and, uh, and they would do uh, an improvised play. So they'd do a two-act improvised play. And they were all students of Mick. So that was the first, I think, pure improv show that we did. And then a couple years after that, we started doing the Screw Puppies, which went on forever. Mm-hmm. And that was that was kind of like our late-night blowout, me and Joe and Mick and Eddie Furman and people like that. Okay. But still, I mean, uh, it, it's funny with Annoyance because the vast majority of our shows are not improv shows. Yeah. They're plays. Mm-hmm. And we use improv as that tool. Okay. Uh yeah, the classes, uh, I haven't been there in a few years, but they were uh, pretty high demand. Mick, at least for a time, uh, I don't know if it's any different now, was the only one that taught five. Mm-hmm. I think when I was going through, you were the only one that taught four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's. A... Uh, do you still only teach four? No, I teach two now. Okay. Yeah, it was, um, there's, now, there's now four levels, and Mick is not even technically called level five anymore. It's just Mick's class. Okay. Um, because it, you know, the the structure of the program is a little difficult because, as you know, you, you might have two level four classes, which is sometimes 30 people, and then those people have to funnel into one class of mix, so not everybody gets to take the class all the time. Yeah. And now Mick is even stepping back from that into some other experimental things. So right now, what he's teaching is um, directing improv. Uh, so it's a it's a class of I think ten and there's five actors and five people who are really there to study directing mm. and he he plays the balance of that between you know giving the actors notes and then having the directing people give the actors notes and talking about how to manage you know improv rehearsals and shows and things like that so it's kind of a a dual level class which he's been doing a lot more now I'd like to take that class yeah it's an interesting <laughs> class it really is. Um, but when a few years ago I did a show at Second City called Rush Limbaugh the Musical and I stopped teaching because I was doing that show three times a week Mm. and it was just too much to perform three nights a week and teach one night a week and I was still trying to work a little bit in the corporate end and um, so that show was in the winter and spring and then we rolled into the summer and I'm like I'm just going to take the summer off too just to have a break Mm -hmm. And then we came back in the fall, and I taught a little bit as a sub, but I basically took a year off. And then when I came back, what we decided was that it, with only a couple teachers that we have teaching on that high level of like level four, it was very difficult for me to find substitutes because I miss class sometimes because I'm traveling with Second City doing corporate stuff. Right. Um, so teaching level, I went back and taught level two, which I've been doing for a couple years now. 
And that way it's easier if I miss a class to have somebody else fill right, in yeah. for me. And I also like it because for those people, I'm the first annoyance teacher they get, which is kind of fun for me now. Because yeah. it's like, okay, I, I, I get you at a different point in this path now, yeah. and it's <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice challenge for me. Yeah, I, I mean, even in my limited... I've only been teaching a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I teach 301 more often than not. Uh, and every once in a while, I'll go down to 101 or 201. And it's so interesting to see how much someone can grow, or sometimes not grow, uh, but more often than not grow from one eight-week period into the next eight-week period. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, I love it. And I still use a lot of the same exercises. Sure. I just fashion them with a different perspective, mm-hmm. you know? So the people who take me for level two are doing a lot of the same stuff as the people who used to take me for level four. Mm-hmm. But we're just focusing on different things with the same exercise. Uh, uh, so you're saying you kind of just, do you set what you're going to do for each each class? to Like as in it wouldn't be a set curriculum? Yeah. Well, there are certain things we like to cover. Okay. Uh but how the teacher gets there is up to the teacher. It's one of the things that's nice about the annoyance program. Yeah. So while the, the 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 focus of the level is basically the same, you're not doing the same exercises and things like that. Okay. So like in level two, I spend way more time focusing on the beginning of the scene, that annoyance mindset of being strong at the top and that initiation and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time on that. Whereas in level four, we spent more time on, you know, really digging into emotional depth and connection and how to play that out over longer scenes and things like that. So, right. Okay. Since we're on a lot of this uh, kind of class uh, stuff, mm-hmm. uh, as far as the annoyance goes, it's, uh, and this is an old question, you got the annoyance, you have I.O., you have Second City. What separates the <coughs> annoyance from the other other two, as far as their outlook, their philosophy mm-hmm. on things. Because I could tell you, when I was in Chicago, the reputation of mm-hmm. the annoyance mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be, uh, at least when I was there, what I actually experienced when I went through the program. Oh, interesting. Because uh, the, the reputation I got was that it was like, fuck, piss, shit, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff, which of course there is some. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I went through, it was quite different. There were people yeah. there that seemed to hear the reputation and bring that into class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how, how would you put the... the yeah, philosophy? it's <laughs> it's funny because I don't... Unless you've been through the program, I don't think anybody gets it. Yeah. I don't think anybody gets it. People used to say, oh yeah, go to the annoyance, they teach you how to say fuck on stage. <laughs> or they teach you how to break the rules. And it's like, no, that's not what we do. Uh, I I was very fond a long time ago of saying, we don't teach you how to break the rules. We teach you how to be in a scene where if the rules are broken, you don't fall apart. Yeah. Right? It doesn't freak you out when somebody doesn't do it the right way, quote unquote. And, And I think the strength of our program is that we strive really hard in dealing with you as the individual improviser, Mm -hmm. right? And we start out certainly with a basic mindset of, you know, people talk about what's the annoyance style. I don't think there is an annoyance style. 
I think there's an annoyance philosophy. Yeah. And the philosophy is you need to be the strongest performer you can be on stage. And whatever helps you be that, that's what we're going to try to do in our classes. We're going to try to get you to be the most confident, strongest performer you can be. Because if you're that, you can do anything else. You can do a Herald, you can do a Laurent, you can do a sketch, you can do a musical, you can do, you can do any of that stuff. But you can't do any of it if you're not confident in your own ability. Yeah. And know what your voice is and know who you are. So we really focus on helping people figure that out and giving them tools to figure it out. Yeah. So that that personal power and the focus and knowing knowing what you do on stage that either A, makes you more powerful, or B, doesn't, and being able to, to point that out to people and help them recognize it so they can make their own adjustments, that's, I think, what we do, and yeah. we do it best. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we talked about this a bit yesterday. Uh, IO has six or so levels now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think two of them are the Herald, uh, and another one of other forms, and then another one where you create your own form, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the Annoyance doesn't have uh, a single level that touches form at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I've, I've mentioned this yesterday, but I quote you all the time with your, uh, your line, which uh, if I can ask you to deliver it about form. Oh, right. Yeah, no, no one leaves your improv show in the audience and they turn to their friend and go, man, they LaRonded the shit out of that. Because <laughs> the audience doesn't know. They don't give a shit. Yeah. Uh, and I mentioned this too. The other one I liked is uh, it was a, uh, a team asking you, when are we going to work on form? When are we going to work on yeah. form? Yeah. And what'd you tell them? I said, we'll work on form when you can do it. Two person team without boring the shit out of me. <laughs> what is it? Uh, <laughs> you, you, you talked about it already a, a bit, but what is it? What is it? about form mm-hmm. that you try to discourage? Well, I'll go back to something that Mick used to say, and and I use this sometimes in class too. Mick used to say when he was teaching that you can take six improvisers who can't play a moment and can't relate to each other on stage and be interesting, and you can rehearse a form for six months and put them on stage and the show's going to suck, Right? And you can take six improvisers who are inspired, who do connect, who can play a moment on stage, and you can pull a form out of a hat five minutes before you go on stage, and the show's going to be great. Uh, the form is just something to hang your hat on. Yeah. You know, it's a structure, which is fine, and it can yield interesting results. But so often, I find improvisers who are way more concerned about the form than about doing good improv scenes. Yeah. And and they will sacrifice the fun and the inspiration of improvisation in order to serve the form. And I worked with a group here yesterday, and one of the things I told them to always remember from our philosophy is the form is there to serve you. You are not there to serve the form. And so often when we think, oh, Harold, or whatever that is, whatever the form is, it's like, are we doing this right? And if you're up there trying to improvise and worried about whether you're doing it right, you're probably not having a good time. And if you're not having a good time, I guarantee you the audience isn't. So, you know, it's it's not that we it's not that we have anything against form. I don't think we just never saw the need for it. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. 
it's but when when you see a show like if you came to the Annoyance and saw a show like The Screw Puppies, you would walk away seeing things like pattern and repetition mm-hmm. and you know callbacks and things like that that just naturally happen. Our philosophy, I guess, was always that if that stuff happens, it happens. If it doesn't, we're not going to go and have notes afterwards and talk about why it didn't. It just didn't. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. You brought up that you were working with one of the groups. Um, this is kind of transitioning a bit into uh, just kind of general improv stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did power improv characters, power improv emotional commitments. Uh, as far as power improv characters, what were some of like the, the quick takeaways from that? Uh, well, the, the character class really does focus on that annoyance idea of being decisive at the beginning of the scene. Yeah. Um, one of the core beliefs, I guess, in the annoyance mindset and carried over, you know, power improv is something that Joe and I kind of call what we do when we travel with Bass Prov. It's, it's kind of an extension of the annoyance mindset. And mm-hmm. We've kind of added our own little flavor to it. But the idea behind that is that we don't ever want to see somebody walk on stage and look like they're an improviser waiting for something to happen to them. So our philosophy is that the best gift that you can give your scene partner is a strong character with a point of view. And so whatever gets you there the fastest is what you should do. Yeah. The point is that you got to get there. you got to get there as quickly as possible and then, you know, live that choice. So be decisive and then live your choice in the scene. And through that, your character is going to come to you. Yeah. And it's okay. not about, like, I, I, t- I told them in the class yesterday, I'm like, if you're expecting, you know, us to do, you know, work on, you know, here's how you play an old person, or whatever, it's like, <laughs> no, it's not going to be it. It's all about it's all about being focused and decisive at the beginning and then seeing where that leads you through the scene. Yeah. To us, that's that's really the, the idea of character. Yeah. And, and allowing, then, that to evolve... Uh, it's a little bit different when you talk about uh, our shows because, you know, we do have to get into some more depth in our in our philosophy because you're not just, when, you know, when you're working on an annoyance show, you're not going to play that character for two minutes. You're going to play that character for an hour and a half yeah. in a musical, yeah. in a lot of different situations and singing and everything else. So, So as we explore a character, we do do it in that regard, in a lot more depth because you have to be able to sustain that guy for 90 minutes. Sure. So, in that regard, it's a little different. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's one of the... That idea, that power improv character part of it mm-hmm. is what I, I feel kind of helped me get where I'm at with, with improv because I went through I.O. Uh, and I tend to stay... Uh, my comfort zone is more closer to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would go through I.O. and I would play closer to myself, but I wouldn't really be doing anything at the top of scenes Yeah. Uh, because it, it was... Um, I want to help that person. I want to make that person look good. Um, and, I, and some of those concepts weren't just quite clicking with me. So I had taken... Well, actually, I went through one class at the Annoyance, and most of it was uh, fuck, piss, shit, uh, <laughs> all, all of those things. And I was like, this is not where I want to be. <laughs> uh, and then I, I talked to a couple of people, and Susan was one of them, and she's like, get your ass back there. Uh, so I, I did take level two and then went right into three, mm-hmm. four, five. Yeah. 
had uh, I.O. auditions after, somewhat soon after five and got put right on a, yeah. a team, which last, which is still around. Uh, that's darts. Um, so, yeah, it was actually going through the annoyance, I feel, did that, and then also doing a duo, which just gave me so much more. And yeah. a tin sandwich, I don't know if you ever... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, musical improv. Ridiculous. Uh, what about power emotional commitment? Yeah, <clears throat> for me, the, the, the big takeaways in that are simplicity. Mm-hmm. You know, after after doing this for 28 years, I really try to, um, whenever I walk on stage, try to clear my mind of as much stuff as I can. Yeah. And By the way, we're in the boiler room. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and on the street with Freddie. <laughs> Every once in a while, I would just. Um, okay, so I try to clear, clear my mind of as much stuff as I can and keep it simple. And and for me, like the best way to connect emotionally with somebody is to not worry about where we've been or where we're going. To only think about where we are. Yeah. And a lot of that class, that emotional commitment class, is all focused on the here and now. And whether you want to call that, you know, being in the moment or whatever, it really is like paring everything down and forcing people, I put people in positions where they are only supposed to think about what is just happening to them in that very second of the scene and not glossing that over, not letting it go for the sake of the next story element, dealing with it right then. And so it is about... You know, this person just said X to you, and you just kind of let that go by. Go back and react to that. How can you yeah. not react to that thing that just happened, you know? And it's fun, you know, you watch people get super connected and super emotional, and, and things that oftentimes go past in improv scenes don't go past. Mm-hmm. And then what you find out is, we talked about this today, the scene really doesn't have to be about very much. Yeah. If you dig deeper... You don't need to go wider. It can be a super... There was one scene that was a brilliant scene today that was all about how much sugar this dude was putting in his coffee. And somebody else did not like it. And that scene was probably the funniest scene of the day for about two and a half minutes. And that's all it was really about. And that's all you need. Yeah. You know? But but that involves also not only committing emotionally, but also just trusting that you can sustain that as the actor Mm -hmm. and keep it going. Okay. Cool. Uh, Just touching on some of the other object uh, or uh, uh, elements Mm -hmm. of of scenes, uh, object and environment work, Uh, there's another thing I've stolen from you, uh, which is uh, when people are doing object work, uh, whose partner got it right? Everybody. Who's, yeah, whose partner got it right and just keep asking until everybody's hand yeah. is up. I also do another variation of that, uh, which I ruined for me in my last class because somebody had heard about it. It <laughs> really annoyed me. Uh, and that is, uh, who here is an actor? For me, it's if you're on stage, sure. you're, you're acting, whatever, yeah. whatever it's going to be. But what about object and environment work? Uh, yeah. How do you think that, how important do you feel that that is to, say, an annoyance scene? Um, the way it's taught. Well, for me, <clears throat> and there, there's some variation in this, uh, you know, but it's it's all kind of variations under the same umbrella. For me, it's that you're if you're not connected in some way emotionally to what you're doing, you're wasting your time. 
And the environment exists for me in scenes only as a way to further either tell the story of the scene or tell the story of my character or give my scene partner the opportunity to do that, mm-hmm. right? So what I don't like is obligatory object work. I don't like obligatory anything yeah. in improvisation. Um, and I and I guess if you're going to talk about that, that philosophy too, it, it really does speak to that. I think there's a big difference between improvising out of obligation and improvising out of inspiration. And too often we're obliged when we improvise. We're obliged to our partner. We're obliged to the form. We're obliged to some rule that somebody told us. We're obliged to whatever that is. And if you're improvising out of obligation, you're not in the space you should be in. And so I I use that example today. I'm like, you know, we go out and we, we create something on stage because we've been told that we're supposed to. But we don't, we're not connected to it. We don't care. Yeah. And we think it's helping the audience, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, as I say, it's it, you can go out on stage and create the most beautiful, detailed, improv coffee shop in the world. But if you put two characters in it who don't have anything to say and aren't interesting, nobody cares about your coffee shop. <laughs> You know, it's, who cares? Yeah. Nobody's going to, again, the audience is not going to sit there and marvel at the specificity of your object work mm-hmm. if it is not somehow supporting what you're doing. And and the ironic part of that is that if it's not supporting what you're doing, it's probably not going to be specific. You're not going to be connected to it, so it's going to be bullshit anyway. Yeah. You know, you're going to be half doing it. Mm-hmm. So, which is another, I guess... Long-time quote of mine is that nobody is sitting in the audience going, man, I sure hope they fix that bike. <laughs> they don't care. You know, they don't care about that. They don't care about what you're doing. They care about how you're doing it and how important it is to you. Yeah. That's what they care about. That's another huge thing I got from the annoyance, uh, which is it's not uh, just what you say, but how you say it. Yeah. Not just what you how. do, but how you do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> I hope they fix that bike. Uh, what about uh, the the whole game aspect of of improv? Mm-hmm. How does that fit into the philosophy uh, of the annoyance or your own school of thought? Well, you know, I, I I think it certainly exists. I think it might exist in different kind of terms for us. Sure. Most of the most of what I see as game elements in scenes when I'm watching them involve. Um, more individual than collective, Mm -hmm. like recognizing those patterns and those things that you create for yourself that then can become game-oriented for you. I think we tend to look at it more that way since we're more personal-focused. But, you know, another thing that I talk about a lot is there's a big difference between looking for the game in a scene and seeing the game when it presents itself. Yeah. And if you're looking for the game, the game's all you're going to see. And there's so much that you will miss, I feel like. If you're open to the game, if you're open to the possibility that there could be a game in this scene, then it'll present itself to you, and you'll get it. But so will everything else. I just think sometimes when you talk to improvisers about game, if they get too focused on it, they miss too much in the scene. They don't they don't see the whole scene. They don't see everything that's happening. 
because they're in their head they're going, yeah. where's the game? Where's the game? Where's the game? Yeah. And <clears throat> and sometimes, sorry UCB, sometimes there's not one. Yeah. Sometimes there's yeah. not a game. Thanks. There, there just isn't. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for recording that. <laughs> <laughs> when you're when you're teaching in New York and you uh, you're trying to get across to some of those guys about things like your character's point of view or their or their mindset or that thing that they want and you see people look at you like, I don't get what you're talking about, mm-hmm. if you just insert the word, that's the character's game, they, they get it. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, it's his game. Okay, I got it, I got it. It's it's so funny how like influential some of those words are sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Susan will say, like, uh, a game is anything you do more than more than once. Yep. Uh, which yep. kind of says what you were saying. It's just more of a, an individual thought. Um, how... If you were to rank, uh, this is not a question, I may even cut it, uh, but out of character, relationship, object environment, game, uh, the order of importance for you, where, uh, with the most important being one, least important being four, mm-hmm. where do they fall? Uh, depends on your definition of relationship. Okay. Would it... My definition of relationship is, how are these two people affecting each other? Okay. If that is the definition of relationship, then that's number one. Okay. I, I feel like that's the basis of every good scene, is how are these two people affecting each other? Right. And then from that to character, you know, how how are they individually and how are they affecting each other? And, and then everything else kind of, depending on the scene, plays out in various levels of importance. Okay. Um, you know, there's... Um, there's that mind. With one more thing about the environment thing is that, <clears throat> you know, people say, well, you have to do something. You have to do something. You can't just stand there, right? My response to that is, I would enjoy. I enjoy watching improvisers do things as opposed to stand there. Sure. But put a gun to my head, and I would rather see two interesting characters stand and talk then two boring characters do a bunch of stuff. Yeah. You know? So it just depends on depends on who I'm looking at. You know? I I watch Susan Messing and her characters stand there and talk all day long. She doesn't have to move. She doesn't have to move. Yeah. But some people, it's like, you better be doing something or you're going to lose me because what you're saying is not interesting. Yeah. So it just depends. One of the, the improv thoughts uh, that I've, I've heard going through Mm-hmm. improv is uh and I think it was through the annoyance whatever you do at the top of the scene should be important to you mm-hmm. uh, you you talked a good bit about that um yeah. and the the moments where like because i've I've had classes where i will go over that with somebody and someone will stand there for ten seconds or something just because the and they're 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 in their heads or whatever and they're not doing anything. Uh, and then someone says something, and then they immediately spring to spring to life, which mm-hmm. at that point then for me is kind of tearing down that little reality that they've already built up. So mm-hmm. it's like if you're doing nothing, that's still something. Is, exactly. Right. You know. Is there anything more that you can add to what I've just said? Because I'm not sure there's a question in there. The audience knows that you're improvising. Yeah. So there's a certain contract there, and. Um, they know that when you step off the wall or when you walk onto the stage, you can do anything you want. So 
if I, if the audience knows that and I know that, if I know I can do anything I want, then I have to I have to give that enough credit to know that whatever I do at the beginning needs to have some sort of influence or otherwise why would I do it? Yeah. Right? If I and and that can be the simplest thing like you just said. If I'm standing silently on stage <clears throat> for the first 10 seconds, that's who I am. That's what I've done. And I need to give that its importance. Because if I don't, then the audience, whether they know it or not, feels cheated somehow. Yeah. So we might not think that, like you said, we might not think that it, not, anything is going on, but whatever is happening in those first 15 seconds is something. And that something is what we are. And what we are now is what, we're, what we need to be throughout the scene. Or at least the basis of what we need to be. Yeah. So if I am standing there silent and I haven't spoken for ten seconds, that better be telling me something about my character as the improviser. Yeah. And if it's not, then I've wasted that energy. Yeah. And that really is one of those cornerstone annoyance philosophies. Is what have you done? What have you done so far? Because what you've done so far is who you are. Whether you want to accept that or not, it is. Because yeah. that's what everybody's seen. So you might as well accept it. Because if you don't accept it, then you're going to spend the next 30 seconds of the scene fighting against it and trying to think of something else to do. Now you're 45 seconds into the scene and you're really not connected to anything. Whereas if you just accept what you've done as who you are, now you're automatically connected. Mm -hmm. You go from there. You know, it's... But it's hard. It's hard for people to get over that hurdle. You know? Mm -hmm. Uh... As far as teaching goes, uh, I've had a bunch of uh, teaching in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and uh, not all of them, uh, all great teachers, uh, not all teacher-like, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Where class would start late, uh, class would end early, Mm -hmm. class would end late sometimes. Uh, Your class is the first one where it was like, it was an improv class. We weren't just learning improv in a space. It was like a classroom mm-hmm. uh, feeling uh, of of just uh, there was order. <laughs> we, there, uh, it was it was you were great with time management. Uh, so that's been pretty much how I've mm-hmm. patterned my own classes because I couldn't stand when I'd be sitting outside either waiting for the instructor to arrive yeah. uh, or in there, and then it was like a, a ten to fifteen minute recap of what was done the previous week. Uh, for the people, for the benefit of the people who weren't there last week, yeah. uh, to the detriment of people that are have been there each week. Uh, so that's something I really appreciated about your class that I brought to my own teaching. Thank you. Uh, what do you feel separates you, your particular style? What would you say your particular mm-hmm. teaching style is? I think part of it, um, and this is going to sound weird, uh, and some people who might listen to this who know me are going to laugh. Part of it goes back to my background in team sports, uh, both as a as a player and as a um, as a coach. When I was in high school, um, our high school baseball coach posted basically the running order for practice on the board, and it was timed down to the minute. You know, three oh five to three ten, play catch. Three ten to three fifteen, calisthenics. And he had a stopwatch, and that's what you did. 
and you got all your work in, and you were constantly in motion, you weren't standing around, you didn't waste anybody's time, and I kind of carried that over to class. Yeah. Um, one of the and one of the things that just drives me nuts um, is when people are late. Yeah, I just really like yeah. I understand like coming from work and stuff on a weeknight class and I'll maybe give people five minutes or whatever, but then we go. We just go because it's I, I just don't get it. I don't get it. And it's it's that whole like for me being late is being less than fifteen minutes early. Yeah. That's being late. Mm-hmm. And and so it's just a part of that's my own personality and part of it's that background of being, you know, being accountable. You know, when you you know, people talk about how oh, sports is such bullshit, but one of the things that I think kids learn and people learn in, in being involved in sports is that accountability. It's not just about you. It's not just about you. It's about everybody else. And, and I've tried to carry that over into class, not in kind of a hard-ass way, but yeah. just I just think it's more efficient. Yeah. And and people don't feel like they're wasting their time. And I don't ever want people to feel like that their time is being wasted. Yeah. I, I, I think it's just disrespectful in that way. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm very sensitive to that. I'm very, I'm always very sensitive to that. And another thing that has been really a, a big factor in annoyance classes since the beginning, and this was born out of Dell, or I should say, mixed reaction to Dell, because for those of you who never took classes with Dell, and I did not, but a lot of people who did, one of the complaints about Dell in his later life is that. You would sign up to take class with Dell Close, and it'd be a three-hour class, and you would not get on stage for the first forty-five minutes sometimes, because Dell would just be talking yeah. and telling stories, and sometimes entertaining stories sure. and informative. But you might go three hours in a Dell Close class and get on stage one time, hmm. right? And Mick was very, very sensitive to that, and and. It always has been a conversation among the annoyance teachers, especially early on, is do do the exercises, say what you have to say, and move on. You know, yeah. don't overanalyze, don't, you know, don't storytell, don't do any of that shit. Keep it moving, because people are going to learn way more being on stage than they are listening to you talk. Yeah. And that's why, like, a lot of times, and I often say this in class, is, now, I think sometimes people expect you to break down every scene. And if you do that, though, you don't get as many chances. Yeah. And two, and I've, I've said this to classes before, some scenes, sorry, are just not worth talking about. You know? And it's not that, yeah. they're, not that they're bad. It could be a really good scene, but yeah. there's nothing in it to really talk about. Yeah. There's no, like, quote-unquote teachable moments. Right. And I think people feel weird sometimes when uh, you have to get past that as a teacher when you might spend 10 minutes breaking down the scene that happened before because it brought up a lot of issues about yeah. what you're talking about. And then they do their scene and you go, great, two more. <laughs> and they're like, what, 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 what about mine? It's like, nothing to talk about. You did fine. It was yeah. fine, you know. Yeah. So, but I, I think annoyance teachers, by and large, are very focused on doing more and talking less, yeah. which helps us, I think. Yeah. Uh, as a teacher, have you ever struggled to get? Because, uh, like you had said, you might spend ten minutes mm-hmm. talking about a particular scene. Uh, has there ever been any moments where people? Well, I'm sure there's been moments where people just weren't getting it. 
Uh, yeah. But is there any moment that kind of stands out like that where you, you've tried repeatedly in different ways to get a particular concept across and just ultimately just had to move on? Uh, with individuals or with classes? Either. Well, classes, for, for sure. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's... I tend to move fairly quickly in my classes, especially yeah. in those first four weeks. Like yeah. My class is usually set up of four weeks of ideas, mm-hmm. you know, and then four weeks of, okay, what happened in the first four weeks? And I got I got that from Martin DeMott, who used to teach at Second City, and that is, you know, his philosophy as an improv teacher was only plan half your class and be inspired by the half that you plan into the other half. So I, I try to do that as much as I can of, yeah. you know, because there's things that, like you said, sometimes a class will just grab onto something and yeah. you go, okay, we don't really need to do this anymore because you guys got it. Let's do something else. Yeah. And sometimes it's, i got to figure out another way to come at this. Um, I don't know that I've ever given up on anything, but there are certainly times when you're a little less satisfied with how it came across as others. Yeah. Um, and then individually, that happens a lot. I mean, we had a guy one time who, I'm not sure... Not sure where his mind was at in the classes, but he was one of those students, and it happens sometimes, where he would look you right in the eye as you were breaking down something for him and telling him specifically what the goal was. And he would look you right in the eye and shake his head yes, like, I got it, and then turn into the scene and absolutely not do it. Yeah. And that's when you just go, okay, I, I, I don't know what else to do. You know, I've, yeah. I've looked you right in the eye and told you exactly what I want you to do, and you're not doing it. Yeah. I'm not sure how to get you to do it, but that fortunately that doesn't, that doesn't happen very much. Okay. Is there a particular exercise, and this probably also is a wide question, mm-hmm. uh, that you enjoy doing? Because there are certain things, especially a lot of more organic exercises mm-hmm. or even warm-ups that I just enjoy watching as, a, as an instructor, yeah. uh, but is there anything like that that you just whenever you get the chance to do with a group? Yeah, I love doing the Cosby exercise. That improvises was Bill Cosby? Improvises Bill Cosby. Yeah. And then other celebrities. Yeah. <coughs> uh, because it really is, not only is it fun, yeah. it's stupid and yeah. fun, but it also is really valuable to make the point of how much judgment we have on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, you, when you're encouraged to be bad, and people still are in judgment about how bad they are. Yeah. That says something about the power of judgment, you mm-hmm. know. And I like doing that one. Yeah, I've um, done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the... Um, I remember I, for for your class, because uh, you would start off classes that way. Yeah. Uh, I did a... I did Cosby, of course, but I think I also did Johnny Carson. You did Johnny Carson. Which, awesome. That's yeah, awesome. Um, I think it was Johnny Carson ironing, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Getting wrinkles out of his shoes. Yeah, yeah. I like that exercise. I like I do an exercise sometimes where um, every time two people finish a scene, they uh, I don't know if you remember this one. Uh, they move the chairs to different places, and each subsequent scene has to start with the next two people sitting in those chairs wherever they are, and be inspired by just the location of the chairs to each other. And that's fun to watch too because it really like seeing people just get inspired solely not about story or mindset or anything like that, but where are you and where am I? Yeah. And how how does that what what inspiration do I get from that? Because mm-hmm. I think one of the big things that we discount as improvisers 
so often is just the actual space itself. Yeah. You know, I've got a 12 by 8 foot space here. How can I play with it? Yeah. And we don't give that enough credit and yeah. power. It's always step out, yep. find the center, mm-hmm. and stand there and talk. Yeah. Like, how can I play with the space? How can I use the space to my advantage? Yeah. And I love that exercise for that. Yeah. Is that more, is that an annoyance thing? Because Susan's like that big time, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been here a couple times, and she will find her way to the back of the, the yeah. room, uh, out into the lobby, wherever, you know, behind backstage. Yeah. She, Why she's not? all over the place, yeah. Why not? You got the whole room. You might as well use it, yeah. you know? And I think there's, again, it's that mindset of, well, we're supposed to be up here. Who says? Who cares? You know, who says that? Yeah. Nobody says that. Mm-hmm. Surprise the audience. That's what they're there for. Yeah. What are your thoughts on suggestion? Because mm-hmm. uh, I'll go through classes, and I always love the first class where I say, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And people are like, well, are we going to get a suggestion? <laughs> no, just, just go. Just do yep. improvise. Yeah. Uh, because when I went through... I don't think you gave a suggestion in any of the classes I had with you. Um, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, not needed, needed? I think it depends on where you are. Sure. You know, what you're doing. Um, it's funny, the, the, the word that you just used, when I coached groups, I was always against that word, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it still makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. When I watch an improv show and the person comes out and says, uh, you know, we're Chuckle Shack. Uh, all we need from you is blank. Uh, and it's just my own little thing. As I would always tell groups I coached, never say the word need. We don't need anything. Mm-hmm. We'd like a suggestion. We'll take one, you know. We don't You're need so one. inclined. Yeah, it's it, it, it it's a very weird thing. It's all, and I think it goes back to that annoyance thing about we don't want you to be dependent. Yeah. Right. And as soon as you get a suggestion, as soon as you say the words "we need a suggestion," it implies dependence. And maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe you don't think about that about it that way. But that's just what that word says to me. Yeah. And it's just a very subtle. Very simple difference between saying we like a suggestion. Yeah, we'd like one. We don't need one. We'll, we're going to do something no matter what. Yeah. In the Screw Puppies, we used to say what we're going to do is take a suggestion and then probably totally ignore it. <laughs> and we oftentimes would. Yeah, you know, or the suggestion might come in a third of the way into the show. Mm-hmm. The first four or five scenes might have nothing to do with the suggestion. Yeah in a screw puppy show, and we were totally fine with the audience sitting there going, wait a minute, we, we said umbrella. They haven't done a single scene about an umbrella. It's like, yep, we haven't. We'll see. We'll see if we do or not. Yeah. You know? It's just inspiration. Yeah. It's just inspiration. Yeah. Uh, have you had anybody, because uh, you, you had coach teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not coaching right now. Yeah. Uh, anybody ever blame the suggestion for a bad scene or a bad show? Oh, I'm sure they probably did. <laughs> Yeah. What would you say to that? Well, it's, you know, you you get that. What are we supposed to do with that? Right? What are we supposed to do with that suggestion? Well, you can do anything you want, so that's up to you. Yeah. Right? It's, uh, yeah, I, I think there, there's an old Seinfeld, um, uh, that documentary with Seinfeld, 
uh, about comedians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's a moment in that. I I don't know if it was in that or if it was one night he was on a talk show. My friend Gary Rudor and and I talk about this a lot. But somebody asked him asked him in, in an interview or something about, um, well, what do you do on those nights when the audience just doesn't get it? You know, it's like how do you deal with an audience that just doesn't get it? Yeah. And his response I thought was really professional and really something to hang your hat on as a performer, and that is. He said, it's never the audience's fault. It's not their job to get it. It's your job to deliver the show in a way that they can get it. Mm-hmm. And if they don't get it, it's they're not doing anything wrong. You are. Yeah. You're the one who's not aware enough to adjust yourself in the moment to position this material in a way that it's going to have impact. Yeah. So, yeah, anytime I hear people like, oh, dead audiences, it's like... Not their fault. Yeah. Not their fault. They just want to be entertained. Yeah. So you're the professional. You need to be aware enough to make the adjustment. Mm-hmm. Don't expect them to. Yeah. When I'm, when I'm instructing, uh, I take that how and put it over everything. Uh, the space. How How is that chair shaped? How is the, mm-hmm. the stage? Yeah, all that stuff. Uh, the suggestion. So you got you know, potato salad. A thousand times. Mm-hmm. That's probably been said differently every single time. Yep. Uh, so if someone says, potato salad, that's how they said it is a suggestion in itself. Yep. The accent, everything. Exactly. Uh, so. And it's part of being, again, it's part of being a professional. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you have gotten the word spatula 500 <laughs> times. Yeah. But to that person, first time they've ever said it. Yeah. So they're expecting results. Mm-hmm. You asked for it. You got it, buddy. Yeah. Now it's up to you. So part of being good at this is being able to get past that initial thing of, oh, God, spatula again, yeah. and move on and make it something worth watching for yeah. them. One of the things that is lacking oftentimes in improvisation, I'm not at all saying that it is lacking here because I don't, I don't know, uh, but there is that sense of, I think any improv show, for the most part, could use a little bit higher sense of theatricality. Sure. Right? Uh, And that goes to me towards the way you present yourself on stage, what you wear, how you walk out there, the music you come out to, Mm -hmm. how you get the suggestion, all of those things. Yeah. Being more theatrical in any of those elements is never going to hurt your show. It can only help it. Yeah. It can only help it. And, you know, like when I am in that position where I take a suggestion, we always try to be as specific as possible. That's What you just said, what rang another bell for me, is is those the groups who say, uh, we need a suggestion of anything. Well, if you're going to take anything, why take a suggestion at all? You know, why take one at all if if you if you're going to take anything? Okay. For me, it's if you want this to seem a little more theatrical, ask a specific person a specific question. You know. Yeah. Okay. If you could, if you had one superpower, what would it be? Or you know, if you're, what would be the name of the book they read about your life? Anything like that is is a little more theatrical than just. Say the word snot, great. You know what I mean? It's like, you can do it, but who cares? Why? Yeah, and asking something specific, you're less likely to get dildo. Exactly. Spatula. Exactly. Potato salad. Uh, 
that's a that's a real good thing I'm gonna probably start incorporating myself. I can't remember who said it, but it's easier to picture someone dressed well playing lower status than it is to picture someone dressed in like shorts and a tank top or whatever playing like higher that. status mm-hmm. characters. Absolutely. I, I remember being in Miami one year and um I was at the festival down there and there was a, a sketch group from LA. And they were kind of typical, like, you know, twenty somethings. We're the hot sketch group in LA right now. We've mm-hmm. come to Miami, right? And one of the girls who was attractive, granted she was attractive, <laughs> but she comes out on stage to perform in the sketch show and she's wearing super tight, low-cut jeans and a tank top with her midriff bare. Okay. And the tank top had some, like, jokey advertising slogan on it, right? And one of the first scenes they did, she's playing the the uh, branch manager of a bank. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry, I, I don't buy this. I, you know, I can't I can't buy this. Would you dress like that? Yeah. You look like you just walked out of the club. And and part of me just gets really annoyed by that, you know? Yeah. It's like respect the audience enough to to make an effort in that way. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be. I mean, you don't have to wear a suit every time. It's not, you know, I mean, at Second City, there's the uniform. You Dark suit, dark tie. You can play anything in a dark suit with a dark tie. Yeah. You know? Uh, and you don't have to go to that extreme, but, you know, at the very least, what I like watching in groups is some sort of continuity, right? If one guy is going to wear a button-up shirt with a collar, every guy should be wearing one, Mm -hmm. right? Um, although there was a trend not long ago that I really hated, and that was the untucked shirt, the dress shirt untucked with a tie, that just drove me nuts. It's like if you're gonna put on, the, if you're gonna take the trouble to put on a tie, tuck your tuck shirt it in. Just, just tuck weird it. stuff like that. But I, I was a judge in the college improv tournament in Chicago recently, yeah. and there was a group there, great group. They did a nice job. One of the guys came on stage wearing a stocking cap, <laughs> and I just, you know, even after all these years of watching improv, I just couldn't get past it. Yeah. It's like, are you cold? What's? Yeah. Why? Why do you have a stocking cap on? You're doing a show right now. Yeah. Little things like that, I think people don't think about as improvisers sometimes, and they can make a huge difference. Yeah, uh, I'm probably known in Philly for being pretty strict mm-hmm. when it comes to some of those things. Uh, with how you dress on stage, no hats, no excessive jewelry, shoes that you can move in. Mm-hmm. If you have hair, it's got to be back. Uh, be you a man or a woman, mm-hmm. uh, it's got to be out of your face. And that also goes with you know things Susan says. Uh, you got to be ready to play Marie Antoinette with a ship on your head at any, at any moment. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, all, all that stuff is very glad it's now preserved <laughs> for the record. Uh, and people will listen to this, and I won't look like such a hard ass. And it's uh, only, you know, it's only 25 minutes. Yeah. If you can't put a yep. tie on or whatever it is that your group agrees on, if you can't do that for 25 minutes, I mean, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. People are paying to see you. Yeah, exactly. A uh, couple other quick things. Uh, any thoughts on premise-based improv versus freeform 
improv? Because, you know, the improvise this or the mm-hmm. improvise that. Um, um, kind of broad question. I I like it when it's... I mean, I like any improv when it's done well. Yeah. So I, I, I think it goes back to some of the things that we've talked about before. Yeah. It can be really, really cool if you... A, are committed to the premise of it, and also, within that premise, yeah. do good improv. Yeah. It can't just be, it can't all be the premise. Yeah. Because if you're, if you're not, if you're still not doing good improv, it's not, it's not good. Like, you know, um, th- that group out of Austin right now who does, uh, they're called, uh, oh God, what are those guys called? They're, a couple of them are good friends of mine, I can't remember the name <laughs> of their show, Confidence Men. They're called Confidence Men. And they do mammoth style improv. Oh, jeez, that's tough. And it's not just they, these guys are so well versed in it, right? Yeah, they've really done their homework on mammoth because you know how you like you used to play the mammoth game where everybody just says fuck a lot yeah. and repeats themselves. Yeah. And these guys yeah, have gone know. so far past that. They really have like the vibe and the feel of a mammoth movie or yeah. play. And they are good improvisers within the structure of that, and it's so much fun to watch. Yeah. And they all are wearing suits, and it's all you know that that vibe. There's mm-hmm. a there's a group in Chicago that does really well. A group of ladies that do improvised Jane Austen, mm-hmm. and totally committed to yeah. that. They've really you know I I think the first thing is that it's like do your homework. Yeah. Don't just do what you think Jane Austen is. You have to really get into it and get it down. Mm-hmm. Because the more you do that, the more you get the buy-in. Right. You more the more you get the buy-in, and yeah. yeah. So I I don't mind it at all if it's if it's good. You have to commit to it yeah. like anything else. Yeah. yeah. And improvise Shakespeare. Oh. One of the best Nuts. shows in the country. Crazy good. Yeah. Crazy good because those guys work their ass off, mm-hmm. knowing the structure in inside and out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. You've traveled a lot, uh, yep. both doing corporate workshops, uh, but also doing festivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything, uh, do you see things that kind of separate one city from another as far as improv goes as you go through? Wow. Um, n- nothing blatant, I don't think. Uh, it is, I, I think East Coast, it's like, it's like rap. East Coast improv and West Coast improv is a little bit different, you know. Uh, Chicago's a little different. There, there, there are subtle differences, you know. I uh, one of the things that when I first started traveling that Joe and I noticed when we would go to festivals and stuff mm-hmm. is that whenever we would go to the East Coast, uh, invariably more people were taking notes in the workshops yeah. than anywhere else. It seemed like everybody wanted to write everything down. It, it, one of the funny things to me about Chicago is that people will come to Chicago to study improvisation. Mm-hmm. And Chicago, by many people's phraseology, is the mecca, and people go there to yeah. learn improv. And then you'll have people in your improv class who will sit there for eight weeks and not write down a single thing that you say. Yeah, They won't write anything down, which is fine. You know, it doesn't, I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. But I just, like, from a mindset of... Well, if you're here to study this, I don't know how you keep it all straight. Because mm-hmm. some people are taking three classes a week at I.O. and Second City or Annoyance or whatever. It's like, if you're not writing anything down, how how are you retaining any of this? Yeah. It just, and maybe it's just 
when you're younger, you can. Yeah. But I certainly can't do it. Um, but it's it's funny to me. But like style wise, there there was a stretch there for a while, uh, and it was during the time that I was the artistic director of uh, CIF, mm-hmm. where I was bringing in a lot of groups from out of town. There was a little bit of a controversy in Chicago because I'd get, well, how come you never pick Chicago groups? You always pick out of town groups, you know. Yeah. You don't pick enough Chicago groups. And my response was, right now, things that are happening outside of Chicago are far more interesting to me than things that are happening in Chicago. Um, Because while opportunities in Chicago are high, and it's changed a lot now, there's a lot of people taking more risk. Yeah. Uh, And I I think because the outlets are more. But, you know, the opportunities in Chicago are great, but sometimes they tend to give themselves over to, I'm going to do the kind of show that, I feel like I should do in Chicago, as opposed to I got this crazy ass idea. Let's try it, because people don't want to do that and have it not go as well as they think it should, and then have people go, mm, maybe that person's not as talented as I thought, right? Whereas in other cities where maybe the community's smaller or the mindset is different towards improv, yeah. people taking huge chances. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I guarantee you, nobody in Chicago that I know of would have had the balls to do improvised kabuki theater like the guys in Hawaii did. Yeah. And we brought them into CIF and they killed it. Yeah. People loved it. But if you'd have gotten a bunch of people together after a show in Chicago and said, hey, you know what we should do? We should do full-on makeup, costume, improvised kabuki. <laughs> no. You know? But that's one of the fun parts about traveling, too, is yeah. you get exposed to that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Okay, and one of the last questions is you. This is this is how you make your your living. Yeah. Right. Traveling around, teaching improv, teaching improv in Chicago. Yeah. Performing. Uh, how do you do that? <laughs> uh, well, without without Second City, I would not be. Yeah. I mean, that's. Uh, I started I started working in the corporate part of Second City about I don't know seven years ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's been a real blessing. I mean, it's it's wears on you sometimes. It's a lot of travel. Yeah. But uh, the fact that I get to teach improv in a business context and perform, you know, for sales conferences and whatever that might be and that kind of stuff and make enough money to basically not have to do anything else is a great thing. Yeah. Um, but it's... You know, I got lucky. It was the right place, right time, and I had been doing something else, and they were looking for more people, and, you know, it's it's grown gradually over time, but it's, I know, it's it's hard, and people ask that all the time. It's like, how do you, how do I start working in corporate, in the corporate world, and teaching these workshops, and, you know, it, it's hard for me to really give perspective on it, because I've always had that that name of Second City behind me, yeah. you know, and I just get hired to do the gig, which yeah. is nice. Um, it's a pretty exclusive group. Yeah. The people that make their entire income, Yeah. for the most part, from from improv. And there's other groups out there besides Second City that do it, and I mean, uh, Joe Bill works for a couple different organizations that, you know, he's kind of translated the acting part over into that, and yeah. there's places out there that do it, and they're always looking for good people. Yeah. Um, the 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 hard part about it is that it's you know it's sporadic it's like anything yeah. else we do it's you know even even with Second City with that name recognition behind it and and that consistency 
there are still parts of the year where I'm not doing anything. You know, it's like I uh, usually from right after Fourth of July until the beginning of the fall, that that last part of the summer, you don't get a lot of work. So you have yeah. to plan. You have to really plan yourself and save some money to carry yeah. you over those months or mm-hmm. you know weeks anyway. Um, Years ago, it was uh, the thing was some people would be getting into improv to get on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it, it could still be that, uh, but it could also be on a multitude of sitcoms uh, or writing gigs. Because yeah. I guess it's over the last fifteen or so years, it's just exploded mm-hmm. uh, with things like Thirty Rock and and Parks and Rec and all these improvisers popping up on all these yeah. different shows. Um, Speaking of which, I don't know that you have. You, have you? Was that ever a thought of yours, SNL? Uh, certainly was a thought. Yeah. Uh, never an opportunity. No. Um, no audition or anything. No. Uh, I mean, I I was in shows where Lauren Michaels was in the audience. Okay. But nothing ever came from it. Uh, I auditioned for. I tape auditioned for Mad TV a long time ago in the very early. beginnings of that but again you know for me it's like uh i'm I'm not a real character-y kind of guy yeah and i couldn't you know when they would say oh present three characters i'm like i I don't know what to do i you know i i don't do celebrity impersonations i don't and i I, you know i probably at that time should have and could have worked on that harder Mm -hmm. but I don't know. Look, you know, you look back and you go, "Oh, I probably would have made that decision differently." Sure. But at the time, I was so loving and committed to the work we were doing at Annoyance, it didn't mm-hmm. really bother me right. that I wasn't on Saturday Night Live. And you know, it's that it's that thing that happens to us sometimes, though, where you go, "Oh, I got time for that." I'm yeah. only I'm only thirty years old or twenty eight years old, and then all of a sudden you're forty eight years old, and you go, "It's probably not going to happen. Yeah. Probably not going to get hired by Saturday Night Live." <laughs> you know. The closest I ever came, actually, was when they hired Dave Keckner yeah. uh, years ago. When they hired Dave Keckner and the one dude from um, Kids in the Hall, that that round of hiring. McKinney. Yeah. Right. They, um, there was a nice piece in the Chicago Sun-Times where all these theater writers uh, wrote a little bit about, oh, Saturday, the, the basis of the piece was Nine Who Got Away. And it was, oh, you know, Saturday Night Live was here, they hired these people, we wish they would have hired these people too. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be included in that. It was me and Noah Gregoropoulos mm. and Christina Gaussis, uh, a woman named Marion Mabry, who is now an ensemble member at Steppenwolf, wow. who was in August Osage County on Broadway and yeah. is a brilliant actress. And uh, uh, three or four other people in that it was like, okay, that's that's as close as I'm ever going to get to Saturday Night Live is this article in the newspaper. <laughs> Saying that I should have been yeah, on Saturday exactly. Night Live. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That was it. That was it. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, the last question, and thank you for giving me so much time, Sure. Uh, is for the improvisers in Philly, is there anything that you can say, like maybe one quick bit of thing that helps you, bit of thing, a uh, bit of advice? Uh, enjoy it. Don't, we talked about this today as well. Don't worry about doing it right. Have fun doing it. It's your it's your joy for it that brought you to it. And so often when we, you know, improv 
improvisation, I think, is unique in that way in that most people come to improv because they've seen it. They see somebody else do it, and it looks like fun, so they want to do it. But then because we're people, we feel like we have to take training in it to do it, and we do take training. But in the training, we oftentimes sacrifice that joy for that desire to be right, which we all have, right? We all have that desire to be right, to do it right, to succeed in fulfilling whatever that expectation is that we have. And, you know, after going through that phase myself and coming all the way full circle, it's, you know, now I just enjoy every moment that I have on stage. And I try to have as much fun as I can. And, uh, And to continue to be inspired in that way. And that's led me to, you know, a lot of good shows that I, you know, just walked up with the sole intention of just having the best possible time I could. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is last, very last thing, but I do, I vaguely remember you talking about the guy who, the general guy, who says, uh, yeah, it's going to have a good show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I told what, that story today. Did you? What, what do you have to yeah. say about that guy? Well, you know, my feeling about improvisation is, and the story is that there's there's that guy sometimes in groups who is very very insistent and very adamant on the show being great, and he try in his desire to pump people up and whatever, you know, talking about let's do a great show, let's let's be great, let's kick ass, blah blah blah, whatever that is, and um, but what that does is put you in a space of expectation, and um, so you start you start putting expectation of greatness on something that you haven't even created yet. Yeah. Right? So now what you're trying what you're asking your brain to do and I and I actually have put this into more perspective lately because I read an article about this. You're 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 put putting yourself and your brain in a position where you are trying to simultaneously create something and evaluate something. Right? Yeah. And what I learned in this article about the brain is that that is impossible for your brain to do. You can't do it. You can't simultaneously be creative and be evaluating at the same time. You have to sacrifice one for the other. So if you go in with that mindset of we need to do a great show, this needs to be great, we need to be awesome, we need to kick the audience's ass, blah, 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 part of your brain is trying to evaluate what you're doing as you're doing it which takes away your creative mind and invariably it's not going to be great because you're trying to make it great. All you can do is do it and decide afterwards whether it was great or not. Okay. You can't do it. You can't have it any other way. Yeah. Mark Sutton, thank you for coming back to Philly. Thank and you. thanks for doing the been a long time. Getting Close podcast. And there it is. Another episode in the books. Another episode of the Getting Close podcast is in the books. I'm sorry for whatever hell accent that was. Um, yeah, Mark Sutton, everybody. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, like I said, it was a class. I hope that uh, you will take some of what he said to heart. Uh, try to put some of that into your work. Uh, bring a notebook to class, maybe. Maybe uh, write a little, little uh, something down. Maybe write a little note here and there, babe. Uh, terrible Dennis Miller impression. Wait until the end of the podcast. Uh, I'm sorry. 
uh, yeah, like I said, hopefully it will not be another five years before Mark gets back. So if you didn't get in there, make sure that you do next time. And uh, ah, it was also great getting to perform with him in the Dean show. Hopefully you saw that. Uh, I got the guest uh, star with Asteroid as the monologist for their Armando. For their Armando. Uh, and I have uh, Dog Mountain coming up this coming Thursday and Friday. That would be the 9th and 10th of May at 8.30 at the Philly Improv Theater. It's a really, really, really fun show. Um, uh, I don't wear a shirt in a sketch, and that's not meant to be a must-see sort of tease. I am um, quite pale, although I have been going to the gym. Uh, I have not been going to a tanning salon or laying out in the sun, so I'm quite pale. Uh, I apologize for that. Um, but yeah, it's a very fun show. Please check it out. Dog Mountain, Philly Improv Theater, 8.30 p.m., May 9th and May 10th. Check out Asteroid at 8.30 p.m. on Saturday night. Uh, Saturday night, the 11th, May 11th. Uh, congratulations to all of the new teams that debuted this week at the Philly Improv Theater, Big Baby, Dr. Sleepover, and The Future. Uh, best of luck to all of you. Uh, Aria is playing with the blinds right now. I don't know if you can hear that. Uh, yeah. Oh, and I'm an uncle. Again. Uh, I have three nephews, and now I have a niece. Uh, that happened earlier today, so that's pretty awesome. A little girl. A little, little niece. Um, I don't know when I'm going to get to go home to go see her, but, uh, yeah, pretty awesome. Thanks for getting close.